Uh, let's again ask God to help us with his word. Our gracious uh, Heavenly Father, as we've prayed already, we do ask that you would speak to us this morning from uh, your word and strengthen our trust in Jesus and continue to equip us through its teaching, rebuke, correction and training uh, to live the life you will for us, uh, that life of doing good. And we pray in your mercy uh, that you would help me to speak your truth clearly and boldly as I ought. In Jesus' name, Amen. Uh, we all have at times in our lives goals that just dominate and determine every part of our life, whether it's, say, completing that apprenticeship or degree, saving to buy a house, pursuing permanent residency. Imagine having a goal to which you've been moving towards, which has really been the only thing in your life for 40 years. Imagine what it would be like to be nearing the fulfilment of that goal. And if you can do that, you can imagine what it would be like for Israel looking towards the promised land across the Jordan uh, and the excitement, the anticipation that would be stirred up in them by Moses' instruction in Deuteronomy 27. Here Moses tells them what to do when they come into the land, the land that they've been promised, the land that they've been moving towards since they left Egypt more than 40 years ago. He gives them a ceremony that will establish their legal basis for possession of the land, that will make it their own, and he helps them understand what is involved, not just in getting the land of promise, but in keeping it. Now, whatever your life experience, if you're a believer, you should be able to imagine what it's like to have that goal and anticipate its fulfilment. For every believer from the day we believe does have a goal that we're moving towards, a promise whose fulfilment we are living for, the promise of resurrection and the new heaven and earth. Now that's a better hope and a better promise and as we'll see we already have the spirit guaranteeing the fulfilment of what is promised us. But like Israel on the plains of Moab, we too are pilgrims pressing on to our goal. And from Deuteronomy 27, we can learn how to get and to keep what is promised to us. Now Moses and the elders of Israel commanded the people, saying, Keep the whole commandment that I command you today. And on the day you cross over the Jordan to the land that the Lord your God is giving you, you shall set up large stones and plaster them with plaster. And you shall write on them all the words of this law when you cross over to enter the land that the Lord your God is giving you, a land flowing with milk and honey, as the Lord, the God of your fathers, promised you. Now, you cannot exaggerate the importance of the day Moses speaks of, the day Israel would take legal possession of the promised land. It's important personally for each Israelite and their family. For them, it's an end of wandering an opportunity to become established and to pass on an inheritance to their children, to be in one place, to plant, to grow and harvest, to build. It's important nationally because the people need a land. And this land of promise will establish Israel's place and identity among the nations. And there's even a recollection of the promise, the promise made to Abraham and repeated across the generations in the choice of Mount Ebal for this ceremony. 
Mount Ebal is not just one of the highest mountains from which you can see most of the land of promise. It borders the valley, which is close to the site of Shechem, where Abraham first made an altar uh, when he came into the promised land, uh, when he came from Mesopotamia into Canaan. This was the place where the Lord first promised him the land. And you can't overestimate the importance of taking legal possession of the land theologically. You see, with the, land, with the possession of the land, not only is the promise fulfilled and God's faithfulness established, that's true. The stones, like the land itself, will be a permanent witness to the people of the faithfulness of their God to his word. But there is more. Uh, Israel, as God's people, in God's place, the land that he's giving them in, and then in relationship with the Lord, the creator God as their king. Israel, as God's people, in God's place, in relationship with God, become a witness to God's great purpose in calling Abraham. And that purpose is actually the reversal of the judgment on Adam's sin, by which humanity, all of us, was driven from God's presence in God's garden, and all creation, including us, was subjected to the futility of death and decay. Israel in the land have the possibility of showing the goodness of God's intention for humanity, that we are to live at peace in his presence, in his good creation. Israel can become a model for all the nations of the goodness of living with the Lord, just as they are the bearers of his promise. With the possession of the land, this becomes a reality. So this is a great day Moses speaks of. The stones and the ceremony associated with their setting up will be a permanent reminder to the Israelites of both the legitimacy and the basis of their possession of the land. Uh, setting up stones and either engraving or writing on them the legal agreement between two parties was practised by the surrounding nations and by the Egyptians from whom the Israelites had come. And so when they enter the land, Moses emphasises that they have to write on these stones the Torah, all the instructions he has given. It's to be clearly written for all to see, written very plainly. And Canaan is the Lord's land. And verses 2 and 3, he is giving it to them as those who are his people in covenant relationship with him. The covenant, the Torah, this instruction expresses is Israel's title deed, securing the land for their possession. It's by being in covenant with the Lord that they possess and can continue to live in the land. And they are in this covenant relationship by grace. Covenant and grace are both prominent in the ceremony. Covenant in the writing of the whole law on the stones. Grace in the emphasis on the land as gift, but also in the associated sacrifices. The instructions about the construction of the altar remind Israel and us that they are unfit of themselves to live in God's presence. They're commanded to use no tool on the altar because, as God said in Exodus, their making it their construction would actually defile it. But by the sacrifice the Lord provides, 
sacrifices that both atone for sin and speak of the relationship of peace established by those sacrifices, Israel can rejoice in his presence in his land. So they will come into the land. They'll enjoy legal entitlement to the land as they're in covenant relationship with the Lord, as they are his people by grace. (coughs) And shifting from Mount Ebal back to the plains of Moab in verse 9, Moses reminds Israel that this is their reality. Keep silence and hear. O Israel, this day you have become the people of the Lord your God. You shall therefore obey the voice of the Lord your God, keeping his commands and his statutes which I command you today. In the renewal of the covenant on the plains of Moab, Israel, his hearers, have become being renewed as the people of the Lord their God. And what that meant was that they had to live as his people, keeping all his commands and expectation, verse 1 and verse 26, that frames this chapter. It's this requirement of covenant relationship that to be the Lord's people to live in the land that they're to keep his commands. It's this requirement of covenant relationship that the people are to own for themselves when they take possession of the land. That's the point of the ceremony Moses describes in verses 11 to 26, again returning to that future day. When you have crossed over the Jordan, these shall stand on Mount Gerizim to bless the people, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, Joseph and Benjamin, and they shall stand on Mount Ebal for the curse, <coughs> Reuben, Gad, Asher, Zebulun, Dan and Naphtali. And the Levites shall declare to all the men of Israel in a loud voice. All the people are there, half the tribes on the slopes of Mount Gerizim, half on the slopes of Mount Ebal, facing each other across this valley close to Shechem, with some of the Levites in between. And the division of the people reminds them that the covenant, as we'll see next week, always presents them with a choice, the possibility of blessing or curse. There's always a choice. But it is only curses, verses 15 to 26, that are spoken by the Levites. Why? Why gather the people to hear these proclaimed? Gather them to give assent, to say amen to these curses, to say yes to them as they enter the land. Well, to enter the answer that, let's think first about what it is to be cursed and then about the particular behaviours that are cursed. To be cursed is to be consigned to the judgement of the Lord. And what that might mean will be brought out next week in chapter 28. And there we'll see how dreadful it is to fall under the judgment of God. And these curses are delivering those who do these things into the hands of the Lord (coughs) as the one who establishes and maintains the moral order of the universe through the punishment of those who are wrong. So to To be under this curse, the curse of the law, is to be delivered into the hands of the holy God for his just punishment. Now, why this selection? And why have all the people say amen? Well, at one level, this is a representative selection of the laws they've just heard, a selection that reflects the priorities of the covenant. So the curses are framed between a commitment to the worship of the Lord alone 
and to be wholehearted in doing the law, all the law. And that's followed by curses that look at protecting the family and its place in Israel because the family and its stability are key to sustaining the covenant relationship and each Israelite enjoying the blessing of being the Lord's. It's the family who primarily teach the Torah and create a culture of Torah conformity and it is to families that the Lord will allocate land holdings. Then, of course, there are curses that reflect the priority we've seen in the law, the Lord's priority of protecting the weak and vulnerable. They are cursed who abuse the vulnerable and take advantage of another's misfortune. The Lord had called for compassion on the vulnerable and justice, justice in or justice alone in all legal proceedings. And that's followed by four curses relating to sexually immoral behaviour. <coughs> behavior. All four of these behaviours are behaviours that can take place within the household. Now these are behaviours that can powerfully disrupt homes, make them unsafe places for the vulnerable women who are attached to households, like the sister or the mother-in-law, vulnerable because of unbridled male lust and entitlement. And all these behaviours diminish humanity. Now this is particularly true of verse 21, bestiality, a behaviour that blurs this boundary between the rest of creation and God's image bearers, a behaviour a boundary that was clearly established in the creation of woman in Genesis 2, when all the rest, all the non-human creation was seen as an unfit companion for the man. And the final two behaviours say God's judgment will fall on those who seek to destroy or do destroy their neighbour's life, breaking the absolute prohibition on taking innocent life. Now, more could be said about the priorities and values these curses express. But there's actually something that all have in common. Importantly, these are all sins that can be hidden. It's setting up an idol in secret, striking a neighbour in secret. Oh, and how would a blind man identify his abuser? And who would stand up? for the orphan and the widow who had no voice, no one to speak for them in the gate. Dishonouring a parent can take many forms and like the sexual behaviours, all can take place within the confines of the home where people can be intimidated to keep quiet. Or where these sins become public, like idolatry or murder, they be punished according to the provisions of the law with death. But this is the people of God pronouncing the judgment of God on sins that may never come to public notice. By all the people saying amen, they're actually owning for themselves the implication of being in covenant relationship with the Lord, the holy God, the God who sees and knows all. They're owning for themselves the implication that to be in covenant with the Lord is to be wholeheartedly committed to the standards of that relationship, not just when other people are watching you, not just when you might get caught for breaking them, but in private, 
when no one else sees. Each Israelite in saying Amen is owning that individually. By condemning these hidden secret failures to do God's law, each one is committing themselves to living as the Lord's holy people in his place, to upholding the expectations of being in relationship with him at all times and in all places. And they're affirming that the Lord is the judge of secret sins, as he is the judge of all sins. The Israelites are acknowledging that to be his people, they need heart conformity to the relationship, the conformity of the will that will show itself in a consistent commitment to the Lord's ways, even in private. And standing on Gerizim and Ebal, they're acknowledging that it is on the basis of this commitment that they occupy the land, that they come to what's promised and that any falling short of that commitment deserves to be cursed, that is, deserves to be judged by the righteous God with the judgments that he has already pronounced on covenant and faithfulness. They're acknowledging that only as his people, the people who conform their lives to the covenant, even when unseen, that they can possess and live in the land. Commanding this ceremony where the people hear the curses pronounced and say Amen tells us that God expects his people to own for themselves, to be committed to individually what is involved in being in relationship with him, what is involved in being saved so that we could be in covenant with him. Now that day, a day recorded as taking place in Joshua 8, would be a wonderful day for Israel. A day when they rejoice in the fulfilment of God's promise to Abraham as when they celebrate his faithfulness. Oh yes, a serious day as well when they acknowledge their relationship to the Lord, the living creator, the God of all the earth, that he is their God and that they are his people to live his way and they live in his land as his people. But sadly, that day was also a day on which Israel pronounced judgment on itself, declared its own end, prophesied its eventual failure to keep that good land. For Israel did not keep the covenant. They transgressed. The prophets, starting with the book of Judges, the, the generation after Jesus' death, after the, sorry, the death of Joshua, tells us how Israel worshipped idols dispossessed the poor from their inheritance, embraced sexual immorality, practised violence against each other. And that provoking behaviour went on for centuries. This is Isaiah, how the faithful city, that's Jerusalem, has become a whore, she who is full of justice. Righteousness lodged in her, but now murderous. Your silver has become dross, your best wine mixed with water, your princes or rebels and companions of thieves Everyone loves a bribe and runs after gift. They do not bring justice to the fatherless and the widow's cause does not come to them. Or Amos, for three transgressions of Israel and for four I will not revoke the punishment because they sell the righteous for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals. Those who trample the head of the poor into the dust of the earth and turn aside the way of afflicted. A man and his father go into the same girl so that my holy name is profaned. They lay themselves down beside every altar 
on garments taken in pledge. And in the house of their God, they drink the wine of those who have been fined. The land they were given, Israel could not keep because they rejected relationship with the Lord, rejected the Lord as their king. They brought themselves under his judgment, a judgment they themselves had declared and owned. And after showing great patience, God acted righteously and cast them forth from the land as he said he would. They lost what was promised. They couldn't keep what they had. They turned blessing into a curse because they chose the curse, not the blessing. And this terrifying and real judgment did not happen to Israel because they were specially bad examples of humanity. It happened to them because they're like us, children of Adam, people whose hearts from birth are turning away from God to love ourselves, not God, to do what pleases us, not what he commands us. And don't think the curses Israel declared, the judgment of the holy God on these sins, is peculiar to Israel. God's law tells us what he hates. These curses are an expression of who he is, of his righteousness, and he has not changed. His judgment still falls on those who worship idols, whether they're images or the imaginations of our own hearts. You know, the God we choose to believe in, not the God who is, who has made himself fully and finally known in his son Jesus. Oh, his judgment still falls on those who practice sexual immorality, and that is the use of sex outside marriage between a man and a woman. His judgment still falls on those who exploit the vulnerable, who take advantage of others' misfortunes, who want to destroy another. His judgment still falls on those who dishonour parents. His judgment falls on anyone who does not do what is at the heart of the Torah, this instruction, that is, love God with all their hearts and love their neighbours as themselves. You see, these curses that we hear say that if you do these things, you are under the judgment of the living God, in his hands, to be punished to maintain the righteous order of the universe. These curses say that clearly. So think on your life. Have you ever used another? Ever dishonoured your parents? Ever been sexually immoral? Sex outside marriage? Have you always honoured God by giving him thanks, uh, using what he has given you to do his nil will, not using it to do whatever pleased you? Have you never acted selfishly, never lied? See, the curse Israel pronounces is also pronounced on us. Of ourselves, we could not live in the presence of God. We could not face him. We deserve to be excluded from blessing. God's law delivers each one of us to his just judgment. But thankfully, as you heard, the curse was not the last word for Israel or for us. Israel coming into those lands, those stones they were to raise on Mount Ebal showed that the Lord is the faithful God. And so he remained committed to fulfilling his promise to Abraham that in him all the nations of the earth will be blessed committed to having a people of his own who could live in his presence. 
And in that faithfulness, he sent his son Jesus into the world. And Paul, as you heard, speaks of this in his letter to Galatians, taking up from Deuteronomy 27, uh, verse 26. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it's written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all the things written in the book of the law and do them. Now Paul's point is that both scripture and experience tell us that we could never be justified, never declared innocent in the judgment of God that we will all face, never be fit to live in his presence and enjoy his blessing by law-keeping, by our doing all that the Lord commands. The law, which looks, as we've seen in Deuteronomy, for perfect obedience, which verse 12 promises life to perfect obedience, instead shows us failing and pronounces God's just judgment on us. But God had already decided that righteousness, being reckoned right before his judgment, fit to live at peace with him, would come by faith in his promise as it came to Abraham, by faith in the promise, not by law-keeping. The nations would share in the blessing of Abraham, of being right with God by faith through the same faith, faith now in the crucified and risen Jesus, who has delivered us from the curse of the law. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, for his written curse is everyone who's hanged on the tree. Our debt to God's law, our obligation to suffer the punishment it pronounces on our disobedience, on our heart rebellion against God, is discharged by Jesus becoming a curse for us on the cross. There he suffers the law's punishment, death, in our place. And having paid the debt, we are redeemed, freed from the law's judgment at an awesome cost to our God. It's through Jesus, through faith in Jesus, that we can escape the deserved curse of the law, of being delivered by the law to the just punishment God has decreed for lawbreakers. Through Jesus, we are freed forever, for the value of his obedient death is infinite. Now, these are familiar words and ideas to many of us, words and ideas that we will celebrate soon in the Lord's Supper, but they are also lived realities for every one of us who has been brought under conviction of sin, to whom the righteous, holy God has in his mercy shown us what we deserve for our sin. It is a terrible thing to fall under the righteous wrath of God. And if you felt that, you also know it is a wonderful thing to know that you are no longer and will never again be cursed, delivered up to the holy God's just punishment. And this happens not because we are good or deserving, but as Paul wrote earlier in Galatians, it's because the Son of God loved us. In fact, he wrote, the Son of God who loved me. Loved when seeing our sin, we know we are so unlovely. And because of Christ's death, Paul goes on to speak of the wonderful privileges of believers in Jesus, that the blessing of Abraham has come to us, that by faith we are now, as it says, sons, children of Abraham. 
The blessing of Abraham is both righteousness, that we, like Abraham, are declared righteous by faith, by faith no longer need fear God's just punishment of our sin, and that by faith we become sons of Abraham, part of his family, and so those who will inherit what was promised to Abraham. Blessing, not curse. God being our God and we his people, we are guaranteed our inheritance through the death of Jesus. But more, it's through faith in Jesus we come to belong to the family of Abraham and through faith in Jesus we come first to share in the son's relationship with the father. We become children of God to redeem those who are under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because we're sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. As children, we receive the promised spirit. And all this, belonging to Abraham, being heirs of the promise, being righteous by faith, having the spirit, are ours now. And being ours through faith in Christ, we are also heirs. We have an eternal inheritance a share in the new heavens and earth, the new creation. And so we, like Israel on the plains of Moab, look forward to possessing all that we have been promised, look forward with confidence because we get and keep what is promised because of Jesus, because of what he has done, not because of what we do, because of what he has done on the cross through faith in him. And the spirit we receive is already the down payment on that eternal inheritance, God guaranteeing to us by his good spirit our possession of the new heaven and earth. It is a wonderful thing to be freed from the curse of the law by the death of Jesus. And believer, I hope you know in it and will rejoice in it and rejoice in remembering it today. But the curses and the amens of Deuteronomy 27 also tells us God expects his people to own for themselves, to be committed to individually what's involved in being in relationship with him, what's involved in being saved, to be in covenant relationship with him. Now what does that commitment look like for us who are in the new covenant? What in a sense should we say amen to as God's new covenant people? who receive forgiveness, salvation through faith in the crucified Jesus. Well, as we go through Galatians, we'd see that Paul says that we are saying amen to being saved by grace alone, through faith alone, to the, and to persevering in this humble, dependent faith in Jesus. Oh, we're saying that we can never return to again relying on our works to relying on our own law-keeping to be right with God, having our confidence and pride in our own righteousness. To be saved by Jesus is to say amen, to being saved by grace alone, by faith alone. But there is more. And we will see in the Lord's Supper we're about to celebrate that to rely on the death of Jesus for forgiveness and being included amongst the Lord's people is also to say yes, amen, to living with hope and love, a love that embraces mercy and grace in our dealings with others.
And so that's what we're going to do now. We're going to move on to share in the supper.